Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share a recent panel discussion that I participated in as part of the UVU Ethics Awareness Week, titled Corporate Civic Awareness and Social Responsibility, What Do Businesses Owe Society? Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our session from the Woodbury School today. Uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, corporate social responsibility uh, and some of the issues around uh, what businesses owe to society. And so um, just want to start off and quickly uh, introduce our panel that's here today. So my name is Jeff Peterson. Uh, I am currently uh, serving as the faculty and curriculum director for the MBA program and was formerly the chair of the organizational leadership department and uh, ethics and teaching business ethics has been a big part of my career here at UVU. I've been here about uh, 13 years. And uh, so this is an area that, uh, that I care deeply about. Um, we also have Angela Schill. So Angela, would you just briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I teach at, um, I teach here at UVU. I've been here about a year and a half. I teach organizational uh, behavior, and I'm in the organizational leadership department. And I have done a lot of research on different areas in um, disability studies and how that kind of plays into this topic on ethics is where I'll be focusing today and means a lot to me as well. Great. Thank you, Angela. And we also have Jill Jasperson. So Jill, would you introduce yourself? Hi there. I have been uh, in the Woodbury School of Business for over 20 years and have taught different uh, classes. I started out in the legal studies um, department and it has been being sunsetted now and so uh, moved to accounting and now I'm in organizational leadership. I've been involved with um, ethics for quite a while. I was the assistant director at the Center for Study of Ethics in uh, 2009 and 2010, I think through 2012. So um, I worked with David Keller at the time. Anyway, I uh, attended a corporate social responsibility uh, conference actually in uh, Geneva, Switzerland at the UN building. It was very interesting. I teach currently what's called individual action and corporate social responsibility which um, I guess you consider can consider it a business ethics, but I teach quite a few section of, sections of that now in the organizational leadership um, department here. So I am in the same department as these two wonderful people and um, it's really an interesting subject. Great, thank you, Jill. 
Uh, we'll also be joined in just a little bit by John Westover. So John is the current uh, chair of the organizational leadership department. He is uh, also, I'm going to forget exactly the name of the, the Center for Social Responsibility. Uh, and he can introduce himself. Impact or, yeah. Social <laughs> Impact, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, again, an area where um, he's been very interested uh, and involved for uh, a long time. And both John and I are on uh, the board with uh, the, the Center for Ethics here. So, so very involved with that. So, all right. Um, what uh, we're going to do is uh, I, I want to start off by giving a little bit of background into uh, business ethics and corporate social responsibility with that. And then we'll move into uh, having each person kind of talk a little bit about areas where, where they have some expertise and some knowledge. So um, now business ethics um, is similar to, you know, virtually any other kind of ethics in that, that we're focused on the primary three kinds of, of philosophies. So um, the first being utilitarianism, um, which is often called uh, consequentialism or ontology. Uh, the idea that uh, we judge something as being moral or ethical uh, based on the consequences of what it is. So if something uh, has positive consequences, then that would be the moral thing to do. And again, the underlying idea being that, uh, that which produces the greatest good for the greatest number of people is the most ethical thing to do. Uh, we also, of course, uh, uh, focus somewhat on deontology or kind of the rights and principle-based ethics. Um, so this idea that, uh, you know, regardless of what benefits might come, people have certain kinds of rights that should not be impinged on. And uh, a similar idea to say that there are certain kinds of principles and you know, obviously one of the main principles is the idea that human beings should be treated with dignity and respect. So anything that, that does not fulfill that would be considered to be unethical. And then the third area, of course, would be uh, virtue ethics, which is the idea that there are certain virtues that we should uh, be striving towards. And so we should identify what those virtues are and being inside of an organization uh, is going to influence the kind of a person that you become and and has that influence. And so we should pay attention to those things. So so those are three areas that, that strongly influence uh, business ethics. Um, uh, however, in business, I, I'd have to say that uh, prob probably the main focus in business tends to be much more on kind of utilitarianism. So most arguments in business kind of come from that idea of this is what's what's best. There are a number of things that do hit on the idea of you have certain rights, and so we need to uphold those uh, those rights. And uh, virtue ethics comes up not nearly as much as it probably should, um, but that's that's kind of where. So um, I want to just give a little bit of background into a couple of the philosophies behind corporate social responsibility, um, and then we'll like, like I say we'll get into some of the, the more nuanced flavors of this as we go. So uh, corporate uh, uh, social responsibility or CSR is that area where we're looking at what is the role, the proper role of a business in society. So what do we owe society? Uh, how should we act? What are our responsibilities and our duties and those kinds of things? And as we, um, we look at this, there are two main models that have emerged as the, the uh, predominant way of, that people think about our responsibility. And the first one is simply called the classical vision or version of 
of corporate social responsibility. And um, what that um, basically says, and, and I'm just going to quote Milton Friedman because he is kind of, you know, the, the godfather of this area. And so Friedman says that in a, a free economy, there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game. So that really is kind of the classical model um, in, in summary, and we'll explore it just a little bit. But that's the idea for this is that uh, from Friedman's view, um, the only thing that a company is responsible to do is to try to increase its profits and the only caveat that it has is you have to stay within the rules of the game. And so we'll look at some of the, the reasons why and some of the problems with this as a, as a philosophy. And a lot of this is based on this concept of the idea of private property. So, um, and again, this gets more into the deontological thing that says, you know, people have their own private property and if something is your own private property, you have the right to do with it as you please to do with it. And so you might think of it this way, you know, I'm, uh, I'm an individual, I have this private property, and I decide I want to employ that property in some way to be able to make some profit off of it. So I start a business or I give it to somebody else to do something with. And so the idea then is that that entity now is supposed to do something with this, uh, property that I have given them and return back to me uh, a reasonable return on that uh, property that I have given to them. And so um, some of you may be familiar. Um, so I'm going to use a couple examples of Apple, um, the company Apple. Uh, um, Steve Jobs, when Steve Jobs was CEO of Apple, um, what he said was he, he did he did absolutely zero philanthropic work. He didn't donate to any kinds of things. Um, and when people asked him about it, he said, well, th the thing is, people have given me their money with, again, given me the responsibility to provide them with a return on their money. And so if I were to take their money and give it to a charity, what I would be doing would be stealing somebody else's money that they had given to me in order for me to provide them back with a return on that. If the person that has given me their money wanted that money to go to charity, they would have just given it to charity themselves and cut out the middleman and the overhead of having a business to do it. So Steve Jobs' view was not only was he did he have no responsibility to help out anywhere, that it was actually morally wrong for him to take money that people had put into his company and turn that into other kinds of things. So um, it's, it's uh, there's, again, there's some strong arguments that people can make for why they uh, don't have to do anything in terms of supporting uh, anybody other than the stockholders of the company. Um, and a lot of companies take that position that I don't have to, and others even take the position of saying, uh, not only do I not have to, it would be immoral for me uh, to do that. Now, there are some... Um, issues that come down with to, to this and we start to kind of criticize this model and one would be saying you know can we really say that uh you know again coming back to to uh, utilitarianism the the underlying philosophy is that you know each person who's individually pursuing their own best interests which would be 
I want to get more money out of this company, that somehow everybody doing that is beneficial to the society as a whole. So that um, that is a questionable assumption to be able to, to assume that simply because each person is employing their capital in order to get money back, that somehow that is uh, actually beneficial overall to society. And so that would be one challenge to it. Um, another uh, challenge to it is this idea that, you know, private property uh, has, you know, kind of no limits. So yes, people have a right to their own private property, but the, but that right is not an absolute property or, or right. So for example, my right to using my property is constrained by other people's rights. So I can't do certain things on my property because it would impact other people's property rights and other things like that. So there, there are some limitation to the rights that stockholders have. And so, um, but that's kind of one end of the spectrum is people look at this and they say, you know what, uh, I'm not going to do anything other than doing my very best to provide for uh, my stockholders and to pre present them with the, the largest return possible. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't do something. So, for example, I might have a company and be struggling to find enough good employees. And so I say, what if I did a scholarship for my employees' children to help get them into college? But I'm doing it for the purpose of hoping that those people will become my future employees and do that. But I'm solely doing it for the benefit of, of the company and for the financial things that I think will come from that. Um, now, the, the other main view that comes out of, uh, of business is what's called the stakeholder theory model. And this model says, um, you know, we've given way too much focus on just the owners, uh, the stockholders of the company, and we need to think about the stakeholders. And a stakeholder is, is defined as somebody that, well, actually, I'll just start here. There are two versions of what a stakeholder is. So there's the broad view of the stakeholder, which says a stakeholder is anybody who is who impacts or is impacted by the organization. So from that standpoint, you would say, you know, society and government and uh, the community that you're in, your employees, uh, the, the stockholders are still part of that, uh, the customers, all of those people are part of the stakeholders. Um, the, the narrow view of stakeholder theory says a stakeholder is anybody on whom uh, the, the company uh, has to rely. So the, the company cannot survive without that person. So that, that would narrow it down to say, well, it's just the, the customers and the employer, employees, the managers and the, the shareholders. Those are the ones who are necessary for the organization to survive. And so those are the people that you uh, need to do. So this is a, a much uh, broader way to think about this. Um, the unfortunate thing about this one is when we start to look at this, is stakeholder theory doesn't really give us any guidance into how to balance these. Because ultimately in stakeholder theory, the idea is you're not just going to focus on the shareholders. You're going to focus on all of these different people, right? But if I pay my employees more money, that's money that comes out of the pockets of my shareholders. And so how do I figure out what do I, what I owe my customers versus my employees versus my shareholders? So there really isn't any kind of guidance uh, that comes from that. 
But this would be uh, the area that kind of opens it up where a, a company says, you know, we are part of a community. We live in this community. Uh, we should not be polluting the rivers here, even if it's legal for us to do it. We should be trying to build schools and help people out and all these kinds of things simply as part of our uh, you know, large range of stakeholders that, uh, that we're involved with. Um, but that hopefully gives you a little bit of a sense for the, kind of the, the, the range of views that you can have in business. So you've got the very far end where people say, I have uh, no responsibility. In fact, uh, for me to do anything out and helping others other than stuff that makes me profit is immoral and unethical. And people on the other side who say, we need to consider everybody that could possibly be impacted by this company, and we have a responsibility to those people to try to help them out and to, to balance their needs so that we don't take advantage of our community to provide for the shareholders and that. And then businesses land anywhere along that continuum in terms of where they decide to do that. So again, looking at Apple to today, um, Apple now is very much involved in lots of things that have to do uh, with corporate social responsibility. They, they're doing stuff to, to try to, to you know, train people to uh, be better at using technology. Um, they're very much focused on uh, LGBT issues and equity and different kinds of things like that. So it's a very different company under Tim Cook than it was under Steve Jobs. And that's because they have different philosophies about the responsibility of a business um, to others. So, so that's my kind of overview with that. So um, what I'd like to do now is turn some time over to, to Angela. So, um, so Angela, uh, corporate uh, social responsibility has implications in terms of uh, the environmental, ethical, and economic responsibilities. Um, and it also includes uh, philanthropic responsibilities. So can you share some ideas on what fulfilling these philanthropic responsibilities looks like and, and how those responses contribute to the overall benefit uh, of an organization and to the community? Sure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeff. I think I'm, I'm going to kind of step into that more stakeholder model of things in this discussion and, and kind of uh, go away from Steve Jobs' philosophy on this. But Engaging in philanthropic responsibilities is a way for corporations to improve society and the world with the aim of making it a better place. And under this corporate social responsibility umbrella, philanthropic efforts can yield some wonderful benefits for all of the parties involved. And of course, there is the intrinsic piece to simply do good for the sake of doing good or paying it forward to benefit society, depending again on which theory you subscribe to in this. But when corporations find ways, <clears throat> excuse me, to highlight their philanthropic outreach to tell their story, it has the potential to help their impact become even more far-reaching when they subscribe to this more stakeholder theory. And so let me go ahead and share my screen with you. <clears throat> I wanted to use a very real-world example here. Hopefully you can all see this. Can you see the pizza, Jeff and Jill? Yep. Okay, great. So here, here's my, my real-world example. Last weekend, I went to Malawi's Pizza with my daughter, and we spent 20 minutes waiting for our pizza to be made, and we were mesmerized during this time by, um, we were mesmerized by the education that was going on on these TV screens where we were seeing how a portion of the money that we spent on our pizza, where it was, where it was going. 
And so we watched the entire food process being made and, and, and served. It showed this, how, um, I don't know what I was trying to say. It basically walked us through the process of how our money went to pay for children and other needy individuals to have food in Malawi. So it showed the whole process of how the food was made, how it was being served. We watched this play out on the screens and it had an impact on us. And so I was surprised. I didn't know the whole story when I walked into Malawi's, but as I left, we both were having conversations about this and we, we felt content with our purchase. And we were very satisfied that although we might've paid less for pizza elsewhere, seeing a very visual representation about how we had just inadvertently helped to ease hunger for children somewhere else in the world made this a slightly, this slightly more expensive dining experience worth it for us. And so when businesses can learn how to tell the story of their philanthropic engagement effectively, they gain even more traction in the success of their business as well as and being able to continue to pursue those philanthropic pursuits. And I just wanted to share really quickly a few that stood out to me, a few corporations that have done this well, at least that I've been made aware of. And just think about, you know, of course, there's there's the idea that doing this is a marketing. This is a, a benefit to the marketing of the company, but it also ties into this stakeholders theory of people that are involved want to be more involved because they see what they're doing. So there's a company called Theo Chocolate. And if you go to their website, you can see the extent to which this company has gone to exercise their corporate social responsibility and how to show how they've done it. And so the entire premise of their company in the very beginning was to take a stand against the unethical production of chocolate. And they they did this, this company, by supporting farmers who produce the cacao, the, the, those beans for the chocolate in Peru and other countries or the cacao plant. And then they tell the stories. If you go on the website and, and you can find all different kinds of very inspiring videos that they've made that show how they were socially responsible in the practices for this company and how it has allowed farmers to thrive in their communities instead of being taken advantage of and being improv- impoverished as was the case in the past and is still in other, is still going on in other um, ways. And then one of my very... One of my favorite examples that I was introduced to actually is it's a company called, I've got the the links up here for you to go and look at a few things, but it's called Ganashton. And it was founded by Thomas Ng. And I first found out about this company actually through uh, President Tamina's here at UVU, the president of the university, because she has a testimonial on their website when she works with Microsoft in regards to her experience with them and their involvement with social impact. And so Ganashtim is basically a company, it's much what Jeff was talking about in terms of these these, um, social impact companies when it comes to uh, getting involved in technology. And what their goal is, they're a for-profit social enterprise and they subscribe to the triple bottom line concept of profits, people, and planet that's all wrapped up in the, the CSR idea. And so they use technology and the internet and they they go about developing different ways to connect marginal, marginalized communities to the global community. And so the, uh, Thomas Ng originally came from the Philippines, but the company is running in Australia at the moment. And what they do is quite fascinating to me in the research that I've done is not only do they reach out and provide help for people in marginalized communities, but they employ individuals that are from those marginalized communities. 
So the first thing they did was start hiring people with disabilities or PWD. And by March of 20, you can see this on their website, by March of 2018, 90% of their permanent staff were people with disabilities. And they've started to kind of diversify that. So today they, they have 60% of people that are persons with disabilities. Another 30% of their staff are refugees. And then 5% are retirees. And they've just begun having these discussions with other marginalized groups, such as people with leprosy, HIV, ex-convicts, and women that are living in oppressed environments. And then they try to create opportunities for them to not just be benefited by the work they're doing, but also to do the work that they're doing. And of course, they have it. They, they talk about their economic impact as well. I would highly suggest you going in, especially the part that the, the link that says our staff. They have all these wonderful, beautiful testimonials of people that are working for this company that have disabilities and talk about their experience. And the interesting thing they talk about on their website is also that a lot of people that are their clients have no idea who the the, the different dynamics that make up their staff and so on one level they tell their story on another on another level they just do their work as well um so corporations that let's see let me get to the next slide so corporations that participate in this philanthropically responsible activities indicate different qualities they indicate qualities of being aware and humble and and kind of you know paying it forward a form of gratitude to be able to link what they're doing with their community in an ongoing effort to benefit society and their business dealings as well and be a force for good within their communities. And of course, telling these stories and highlighting these these ethic, more ethically sound ways of doing business and being involved in philanthropic efforts is a form of marketing, as I've said. But it's a form of marketing that can perpetuate the story and also magnify the impact. So beginning with highlighting their efforts or telling their story, this draws in more customers, satisfies stakeholders, and invites them to participate. And then as they have this this additional participation, their business grows with awareness. And I'm sure you can think of a lot of companies who have done this. Starbucks is one that does this in a lot of different ways. And kind of like Jeff talked about, they're they're known for coming up with scholarship opportunities for their, um, their employees. And as their business grows and they can invest more resources into these causes, they can make a larger impact and can continue to give back more and more. And in addition to that, the employees and the, the stakeholders within the business, supporting the business and working within the business, they can bond with one another and feel that unification within the community. So it just ties people together and there's more at stake, just like my experience going to get pizza. It changed how I saw my interaction there and, and and increased the likelihood that I would return. And then ultimately, um, these efforts can satisfy and encourage engagement within the local and even the global communities. And so that's that's my that's my stakeholder model support of this this perspective in CSR. And I suspect that Jill now is going to go ahead and maybe show us how things are not as straightforward and simplistic as I have shared. Thanks, Angela. Yeah, so um, this this is an area where we, we see a lot of stuff today. Um, and sometimes, as, as, as uh, Angela was pointing out, sometimes it's hard to separate out the people who are 
um, actually um, really concerned about helping and doing philanthropy versus what we call the virtue signaling, where people do something simple, you know, purely for the marketing. And, uh, and, and usually what you find is when people are really doing this out of their, their values and their morals, very few people object to this. So nobody's going to object to the fact that people are being helped because they've got disabilities or that pizza is helping to feed people around the world. But there are other times when people make some kind of a big stand or whatever, and then it ends up being very divisive. And that's not to say that it may not come out of it, but, but, but there is a difference between people who really have that feeling of we're trying to do something uh, moral here. And, and there is a whole class of what we call, call social entrepreneurism, where people start these businesses and the, the whole underlying concept of the business is to go out and to do good things um, and uh, and that. So, so again, we, we do see people who have these companies that are doing fantastic and, and uh, great things like that. And uh, it's, it's there. So um, there was a question that came through on the chat. Um, and the question was that, uh, what does it mean for the viability of the concept of social, social, social responsibility? that the chocolate company that you mentioned comprises such a small portion of the market compared to other companies that use less ethical practices in their production. So Angelique, do you want to maybe address that? Um, can you repeat part of the question again? Where you're so saying it's, it's, um, the, the question was kind of around the validity, you know, of the viability of the concept of being socially responsible right. when your company ends up just being a very small player versus these very large players right that are not nearly as, as ethical in their production. I, I think it just it speaks to the fact that it's, you know, what's the story of trying to throw the, the starfish back into the water that have all washed up on the shore. They, you can't reach everyone all at once, but it starts people's ideas and minds going about, okay, you know, we see these huge conglomerates that are, you know, taking advantage of all of these, these chocolate farmers and you see the destitution, at least something like the Theo chocolate is actually highlighting, this is what's going on. This is what happens to people when they are unethically sourcing these items. And so you can see with fair trade and things like this, it's gaining more traction. I just think it, you know, it's, it's difficult to say <clears throat> what will, what will tip those larger companies into kind of being more accountable for what they're doing. And I think it's just people being more aware. So it can help on some level to get the ball rolling, but it's a difficult, I mean, it's, it's a difficult issue to broach. So, And I think that there are other companies. So, so again, if you look at Apple, um, Apple is probably one of the very most responsible companies in terms of their environmental stuff. Because, um, mm-hmm. again, uh, you know, people criticize Apple because there are, uh, you know, they, they use uh, rare minerals that are mined by the suppliers of their suppliers of their suppliers, right? And so, but Apple... And most companies would say, we have we don't have any responsibility for what our suppliers' suppliers right. are doing, but Apple will enforce that to say, we want to ensure that there aren't any child laborers that are mining, you know, copper that's going into our, our things. And so I don't think that being uh, socially responsible uh, necessarily makes you a smaller company than, uh, and then right. I think larger companies can equally be socially responsible in that kind of way, so. Great. All right. Thank you for the questions. Yeah, we're happy to get any questions that you guys want to, to uh, push to us. So, so Jill, um, you know, obviously there are some legal aspects to um, 
corporate social responsibility and, and through the past. So maybe you could, uh, as our resident uh, lawyer and legal expert here, share a little bit about what are some of the legal aspects yeah. of PSR. That's right. Let's uh, look at that. First, I want to speak to Angela for a moment. Uh, I went on an MBA trip a couple of years ago, and it, one of the projects was coffee and coffee beans and you know, having a good way, reliable and virtuous way of uh, obtaining those coffee beans. And so that's what one of our students, uh, student groups at UVU worked with one of those groups. So I thought that was interesting that they were trying to find that. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is I did a faculty development in Australia and they used for one whole, one whole um, nonprofit, they used PWD. People, it was so sweet wow. to see all these people with disabilities working on all of these different projects. It was wonderful. Just wanted to, to add that. Thank so you. let me let me share my screen with you guys. My PowerPoint. And let's see. Can you see that? Now let me jump. Let's do it. There we go. Okay, so these are some legal cases that I have found, and I want to talk about them a, a little bit. Let me see if I can, so, if I can go to the next. So normally, or what I've seen anyway, and I'm not, I can't say that as far as litigation goes, that I'm an, a litigation expert in a CSR or CSR statement. So, but what um, this corporate social responsibility, um, when there's any kind of uh, challenges, it seems to be in the statements. So where those statements, uh, um, when, when they come out. So um, I just wanted to bring this forward. This is the corporate side. So we're talking about the other side of it. So a majority of CSR statement challenges um, have been unsuccessful, where people are bringing um, lawsuits against the corporations and and challenging their CSR statements. So I, you know, just wanted to say, hey, this is what's happening. Um, so the first one that uh, I ran into was Ruiz versus Dairy Gold Inc. or Northwest Dairy Association. And this is this one started in uh, California, but it was um, determined in the Washington Federal District Court at actually the Western District of Washington. This is a 2014 case, so a little bit older. I kind of went up the line. I went from... Uh, older to newer. So they um, totally, let me kind of give you a background on it. The plaintiff that brought this, so this was Ruiz, really uh, relied on uh, what they felt like was false assurances of ethical treatment for the cows and for the workers when they were buying their dairy gold products. So what they were asking for was reimbursement for the monies paid for the dairy gold products and damages and also injunctive relief to stop them from doing any kind of further 
bad acts. Um, so, because they learned about wage and uh, wage and labor lawsuit from some of the workers, they were concerned about that. And also, they showed pictures of sick cows, and they were being milked, and they were very concerned about that, about milking of sick and injured cows. And they had, like I said, had pictures of that. But what it came down to, basically, basically the court examined each of the challenges. There was, there was more than one. There was quite a few of these challenges. And, and looking just at the statements themselves, these CSR statements, the court found that those statements were aspirational. So they weren't false in any type of material respect and it was dismissed. Those challenges were dismissed. And so Dairy Gold, basically they had a motion to dismiss, um, Dairy Gold did. And so they uh, basically won their lawsuit for that one. And Ruiz was denied any kind of, and so sh she was a customer and bought Dairy Gold. And then also became, I think she also had some friends or became, uh, she was either notified maybe by friends or uh, I don't know if it was family or whatever, but that there was some worker issues as well. So she felt as a Dairy Gold customer that she as that type of customer could bring that challenge. And she did do that. However, it was dismissed. So that's, that is the first case on co corporate social responsibility. Those statements that they had the next one, so I've got three cases here. So the next one is Von Dolly versus Yum Brands, Inc. So this is not only it went to a federal court, a federal district court, it was actually appealed from the federal court to a federal um, uh, circuit court. So it went even further, they appealed it. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations.
So the, this federal appellate court dismissed the CSR charges. So, and let me give you a background a little bit on that. The Yum Brands Inc, um, that particular, so they weren't a big, I mean, I don't know, I haven't heard of them. They own basically some Taco Bells and Kentucky Fried Chicken um, restaurants in uh, Kentucky, I believe that's where Sixth Circuit is. So some of the batches of the chickens that they were using, I think this kind of, well, it may have related to Taco Bell too, but um, I kind of thought it would be more for Kentucky, the KFC. So batches of chickens from uh, some of their suppliers were tested positive for drug and antibiotic um, residues. So um, they, they, and there were some other things too, but that's, I think that was some of the stuff that occurred. They did eliminate those inferior suppliers. There were a lot of different suppliers that they, of course, if you're feeding a lot of people, you got to have a lot of chickens, you got to work on a lot of different things. And they had a lot of different suppliers. So those CSR charges were also um, dismissed. And um, this is what the court said, when the suppliers do not abide by the company's standards doesn't mean that the company so that yum doesn't have a standard. That doesn't mean that. Sometimes they get some bad chickens or whatever, and they can't, they can't really, um, they try their very best is what he was saying. Another um, thing, well, and this is an appellate court, so there's more than one. Um, the code of conduct is not a guarantee. It is, uh, it's just, a, again, an aspirational statement. So, um, and that's what they had under Yum, this uh, smaller corporation, that they had this code of conduct that we're, you know, going to have the best chickens we can have with, with uh, good health or whatever, but it's not a guarantee. And one of the things that was brought, that I thought was kind of interesting is um, these uh, judges and the the um, judge that wrote the uh, this particular thing said to treat the code of conduct as something the company will do instead of aspire to do would turn the purpose of the code of conduct on its head. So I thought that was also very interesting. So another dismissed charged. Here's the last one, and we're we're probably familiar with. Uh, uh, maybe you're not familiar with Dairy Gold or Yum Brands, but I think all of us know about Costco. So this was brought in the Northern District of California, Federal District in 2017. So um, let me tell you a little bit about that. And that is, there were allegations that Costco sold uh, prawns that were farmed. Basically, it was in Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia, et cetera, where the, su the supply chain was tainted or, you know, tainted by what they said was, uh, and these are allegations in the 
actual lawsuit tainted by slavery, human trafficking, and other illegal labor practices. So those were the allegations that basically Costco sold those prawns with those kind of supply chain type of um, background. There, these were, this was more of a technical case, I would say, um, because the federal district court was not happy when SUD or SUD, I don't know how to pronounce it, brought their initial case, her initial case, she had to go back and amend it. So to make sure that um, she had done something technically wrong. So the attorney went back and they amended it. Um, But in the end, it was because of lack of standing, um, meaning that she didn't have a meaning she not necessarily had bought those prawns or anything. I think she had bought them after the, after the fact. Um, also, there was a failure to state a claim on the, this particular um, lawsuit. Uh, the plaintiff, so said, did not rely on the website where it talks about these, um, uh, basically these CSR statements. And there was uh, an, And so what happened basically is they would not allow another amended order to dismiss. So they just said, hey, you're going to fail anyway. So we're just going to dismiss this charge. So like I said, it was more of a technical thing than anything. But there were a lot of problems, as you can imagine, with these types of things. They are going to be kind of technical. So a few CSR statements have survived. This is all just so where companies have made really concrete and measurable factual statements or promises to meet their CSOR goals by a certain date. Just have it really concrete, have it exactly what they want instead of aspirational. Then they will definitely, um, those CSR statements will survive and they'll be able to go uh, to court and probably not be dismissed. So my last uh, slide is if you are a business that are looking to minimize your liability and any kind of litigation, don't just don't ignore that CSR at all. Don't ignore that. It's something that is really important. So use disclaimer language, however, with CSR statements, if you want. Employ aspirational language as some of these other um, companies did with their CSR statements. Carefully locate where you put your CSR statements. Are you gonna put them on, on your website? Are you gonna put them you know, in your in shareholder statements? Where are you gonna put them? Are you gonna put them in the SEC? Where are you gonna put them? Carefully locate where you put them. Use estimates and approximations with your CSR statements. Um, Also, when you're educating your employees, basically the education, meaning what kind of litigation and legal risks that you may be. uh, So, you know, risk management, uh, make sure that you do do that and give that training to those employees responsible for CSR. And then also sync both your external consultants, if you ever hire any external, with your internal um, employees to to the same info, so they aren't different types of information. 
and then make sure that your statements are actually accurate before publication. So anyway, that's just kind of a, a legality type of way of looking at things. Let me X out of here so that, uh, you're careful if you're a, a big company or if you wanna do that, or like Jeff was talking about where Apple has gone the extra mile and uh, make sure that the suppliers of the suppliers of the suppliers are like that. Anyway. All right. Uh, thank you, Jill. So yeah, this is, this is an interesting area as we look at some of these things that are happening. In fact, I saw just the other day, there's, there's a lawsuit against a company that uh, makes hard seltzer. And what they were doing was they were including some uh, uh, saying that there's vitamin C in some of this stuff. And so they're, they're now being sued over these claims. And so the, the one party says, well, uh, it's, uh, there, there are regulations about what you can say to try to say that alcohol is in any way good for you. And so they're, they're being sued for, you know, so, so that's an area. And then you can look at things like uh, uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola had um, a situation where they had put together a policy where they said, we're only going to use lawyers whose law firms employ a certain percentage of ethnic minorities um, and they got some significant pushback um, over those policies. And eventually that one, you know, left and, okay. and probably everybody's familiar with like Ben and Jerry's and the, the claims of, of their anti-Semitism uh, because of their stance against Israel with some of these things. And all those companies are supposedly doing things that are, are uh, in, in support of their corporate social responsibility and yet have had some kinds of, of issues there. So, yeah, that's right. So <laughs> it is, it's really interesting. I was really interesting as I started uh, reading more about that. Anyway, yeah. yeah. We did have a, a couple questions come through the, the chat. And so um, I think we have, um, maybe can handle one of them and then we'll save a couple of them more towards the end. So I want to make sure we leave enough time for, for John. But uh, one question had to do with this uh, idea of touching on the neoliberal idea that companies will only do the right thing as long as is as it is profitable and the question is can you know for profit companies lead with their ethics and i think um the the answer to this is that obviously many many companies only engage in these things if engaging in it does improve their profitability um however there are ways that companies can still do these things that where the the actual thing that they're pushing itself is not profitable that it loses them some money by doing it but one of the issues that it comes down to is you know as angela talked about the triple bottom line you know so at the top of the triple bottom line is profit because if you're not a profitable company you just simply will not survive so there is always going to be an element where people have to say you know, there are certain things that we need to do to remain profitable, which means that we're viable. But I do believe that for-profit companies can engage in uh, in socially responsible things that do hurt their bottom line, but that they will do those things simply because they take a moral and principled stand for those kinds of things, even knowing that if they did something different, they could make more money. So it's it's a little bit more nuanced to, than to say nobody ever does anything if it doesn't, if it's not profitable to them. 
because I think companies do when they have strong morals that kind of underlie that. So I don't know if anybody else would like to, to chime in on that topic or. Okay. So um, uh, we now have uh, Dr. John Westover. So um, John, I did briefly introduce you, but you might introduce yourself again so that you can do that. Um, And then, um, so what I wanted to do is, um, so, you know, John, maybe you could talk about um, what like equity centered design thinking is and how does that relate to an organization's efforts to make a meaningful and sustainable, sustainable impact in uh, CSR efforts. So. Yeah, thanks Jeff. And uh, thank you for your, everyone for your patience. I apologize that I joined late, um, but it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I thought to, to, to respond to this question, or sorry, I guess I should start with a brief introduction. I'm, I'm a professor in the School of Business um, in the Organizational Leadership Department. I teach organizational development and change management, HR um, types of courses. I'm also the academic director of the Center for Social Impact. Um, and so actually, to start to respond to the question that Jeff just posed, I thought I would talk a little bit about what we do in the Center for Social Impact um, in terms of the approaches that we try to take in responding to broader societal uh, challenges and, and issues that we face. And in the Center for Social Impact, we, we use what we frame as the pathways of social impact um, with this desire to understand broader social problems as entire holistic systems. Um, so one of the questions in the chat, for example, was talking about um, how, how, you know, a, a philanthropic uh, organization um, in beef oil industries, for example, um, can they really solve the, the problems associated with those industries? Uh, that's a big question. It's a big challenge. It's a big problem. Uh, and the reality is that only a philanthropic approach probably won't make the difference. Um, and, and that's why we need to take a holistic systems approach to better understanding um, the types of challenges that face our communities. So in this Center for Social Impact, we, we use six pathways of social impact. Um, one is direct service. Uh, second is community-engaged learning and research. The third is what we're talking about today, focusing on social entrepreneurship and corporate social responsibility but there's also policy and governance, there's community organizing and activism, and there's philanthropy. And I think a lot of times when, when we talk about CSR, um, I think there's assumptions about what we mean by that. Uh, so in some people's minds, that means, you know, the philanthropic arm of an organization, that's their CSR effort. And that certainly may be the case for some organizations. Um, but the reality is CSR could encompass all six of those diverse pathways, um, different elements of them in an organization's approach to their CSR philosophy and practice within their organization. Um, and regardless of the framework, regardless of, you know, whether the six pathways framework that we use in the Center for Social Impact, whether that's what you use or you have some other framework, you know, um, stakeholder capitalism, triple bottom line, like there's a bunch of different ways to think about it. Um, but the reality is, that we need to, to have a more holistic approach um, in 
trying to better understand these challenges. Otherwise, we're just going to play whack-a-mole um, in you know trying to stomp out one problem, and then we'll have unintended consequences that pop up in another area, and then we're just constantly chasing our tail trying to to respond to each of those elements. Uh, and certainly, there are really pressing, challenging uh, social, economic, political, societal issues. And so the, the title of the session today, um, you know, should, what do businesses owe society? My, you know, I'm coming at this, my assumption, my framing generally is I believe businesses owe a lot to society. I, I believe it's, it's fundamental um, in, in being a, a business that we contribute back to society. And I, I believe there's plenty of research to indicate that the most successful long-term sustainable organizations are in fact those that um, not only provide value to the marketplace uh, with meaningful products and services, but that they do have a people-centric approach. The people within their organizations, the people outside the organizations, their customers, uh, other stakeholders, uh, et cetera. And and when we do that as an organization, um, then we can we can start to tackle some of the really complex, challenging issues, and we can give back to society as a whole. So that's my kind of underlying assumption and, and foundation for what I'm about to say. So all of that said, getting back now to Jeff's uh, main question about equity-centered design thinking, uh, one of the one of the models and frameworks that we use in the Center for Social Impact is this idea of equity-centered community design. Uh, and if you're familiar with design thinking, uh, the idea kind of really in, in brief is that we're going to rapidly uh, experiment um, through design iterations to try to come to optimal outcomes. So we could, we could be talking about design thinking in a whole you know, variety of different disciplines or fields in a variety of different types of organizations with different outputs, different products and services. Um, but the practice of design thinking is that you're, you're going to um, essentially utilize a scientific method by hypothesizing and then running a lot of quick, uh, brief um, experiments and going through this iterative experimentation process to try to refine and hone and come to what the best possible you know, solutions are, the best possible products are. Um, Equity-centered design thinking is, is building off of that, but through an equity lens. So just like I think systems thinking is an essential component to trying to understand how we can utilize CSR, um, s- stakeholder capitalism, triple bottom line, whatever, um, to make a difference in the world, um, just like systems thinking is important. I think equity centered design thinking is really important um, because the the challenges that we're facing that we might want to accomplish through our CSR initiatives, our CSR uh, aspirational goals uh, and values, um, those will only come to fruition if we're willing to invest time and resources consistently over time uh, to be able to move the needle to drive those systemic changes. Uh, And the only way we can really know what we're doing in terms of allocation of resources, time, and energy uh, is if we use an iterative process. 
So we fall forward, we fail fast. Um, failure, quote unquote, failure is not failure. It's learning. It's it's um, it's the opportunity to learn and to grow. And through the iteration, the rapid iteration process, um, we we can come to better outcomes. The equity focus then says, okay, are, are, do we have the right people around the table? Do we have the right decision makers? Do we have the right voices? Uh, are we giving everyone the opportunity to share their voice and to give their input? And are we utilizing that input in a way to drive that iterative rapid, rapid design process? Um, far too often what we see in, in organizations, you know, with good intentions, CSR, um, elements and ambitions. Um, so often when, when you look at who is actually around the table, it's not representative of the very communities that they're trying to, to impact, right. That they're trying to serve. Uh, and in that in and of itself is incredibly problematic. Um, so coupled with this idea of equity centered design thinking, then we have to, we have to consider how are we leaning on a diverse set of uh, stakeholders, lived experience and expertise in how they're approaching the challenges and problems that we might be trying to address through our, the initiatives in our organization. Um, how are we trying to give them a voice? And also, how are we going to avoid doing harm uh, in the communities, um, recognizing that sometimes our very best intentions can, in fact, um, have negative unintended consequences. So I, that was probably a little bit too much to kind of wrap up all into one big, long-winded response. But um, those are some of the different kinds of framings that I use as I think about that question. Thanks, John. So um, you did mention a little bit about um, kind of systems thinking. So um, is there, there uh, more that you could expand on about kind of how systems thinking impacts uh, CSR approaches? Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll reiterate that the only way that we're going to tackle complex societal problems is through complex um, holistic solutions. Um, and I, I think we're naive in fooling ourselves if we think, you know, there's a simple solution to a complex problem. Uh, if there was a simple solution, we would have already figured it out <laughs> and we would have resolved the problem, right? Um, but we have these perplexing, challenging issues that seem to just get more and more complex, messy, and nuanced over time, not less so. Uh, and so if, if we want to have any chance of trying to really understand what we're dealing with and how we can approach it, then we have to take a systems approach, meaning we're trying to map out and identify the components of the system, all the different pieces that are the inputs into the processes that drive the outcomes, uh, whether they're positive positive, negative, neutral, whatever. Um, so you can think of a biological system, our, our, our bodies, right, are a series of biological systems. Um, those systems produce particular health outcomes. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, whatever. Um, I could be the best intended person in the world with lots of really great ideas uh, about what I could do to, to make the world a better place. But if I'm doing that within broken, unhealthy systems, then it's kind of, it kind of gets back to the question that was in the chat, you know, about, um, you know, can a philanthropic approach really solve the problem? Um, 
no. I mean, the best intention that I have won't actually drive anything uh, if the system itself is broken and unhealthy. And so you have to work towards dismantling the unhealthy system and then rebuilding something that uh, is more equitable and uh, that will allow for a more inclusive approach to solving the problem. Um, so the systems thinking approach is just, it's, it's kind of a buzz term, a fancy way of, of framing um, that we need to understand all the components uh, leading to the processes and the outcomes, whether they're good, bad, or neutral. Uh, and we need to understand how they interact with each other. Uh, and only then are we going to be able to uh, look for ways to constructively in, uh, interact with those components and hopefully, you know, get rid of the unhealthy ones, rebuild or replace them with uh, more healthy approaches. And, you know, and every organization has, you know, they have policies, practices, procedures, they have culture. Every organization has a whole bunch of systems in place. And we know historically that a lot of those systems have disadvantaged certain populations uh, and while privileging others. So for example, from an equity approach, we would want to look for ways to, to, um, to allow for, for more opportunity um, that will get those voices around the table. And then you can start to to have um, better approaches to solving the challenges that you're facing. Great. Thanks, John. Um, so I think, uh, so we, we do have uh, a, a couple questions here in the, the chat. So again, if anybody, um, the, the rest of our time, we're going to just kind of answer any questions that come up. So I'm, I'm going to read this question. It's a little bit long, but uh, but I think it's a good question. So and the question is, uh, so what are the ethical implications of pro-industry policies such as ag-gag laws? So by ag-gag, those are ones that like in the agricultural industry where there are laws that prevent people from whistleblowing and uh, informing on that. And then it goes on to say, there um, are there certain industries within which the concept of corporate social responsibility cannot operate? And they say, for example, uh, my children's future opportunities are limited because of the climate impacts of production of certain industries like beef or oil and would um, competition that is more philanthropic really solve the problems that are inherent to uh, production within many industries. So um, anybody want to take a first shot at that? So I'll, I'll go ahead and, and so um, I think John already mentioned the idea that some of these industries have large systems that uh, keep things in place and make it very difficult for things to happen. Uh, however, I don't think that, um, I don't think that you can say that certain industries um, are kind of immune to the concept of social responsibility. Um, and, and I think we even see that even in things like agriculture and that where uh, you have, you know, companies that are trying to push forward uh, better ways of raising uh, cattle and, and, uh, moving away from, uh, you know, for example, with, uh, you know, chicken farming, you know, there are some farmers who, you know, cut off the ends of their beaks and put them in little tiny cages or whatever. And so as part of their corporate social responsibility, other companies will say these are only, you know, free range uh, chickens. And so they're raised in a much more kind of humane way with that. So I don't think that CSR um, can not operate within certain industries um, I think some industries it's really easy to operate within and other industries um, it's difficult. And, and as I mentioned with stakeholder theory, um, again, 
when you're looking at who are all of the different stakeholders that I'm I'm trying to to satisfy, that may be a difficult thing because you could say, well, there's only a certain amount of um, work that people in the beef industry can do to um, to help the environment and still remain profitable and still provide the products that people want to, to buy. But then you see other things like you know the uh, impossible meat, you know, and, and other companies that are rising in ways to try to address the fact that some people don't want to have the, the things that come out of the, the, the beef industry. And so they're willing to eat other kinds of products and, and that. So, so I, I think that there is room for that to, uh, to operate. Um, but, uh, and so anyway, that kind of my thoughts, anybody have anything that they want to add to that or. I want to just say something. I was, I went to a chicken farm, uh, was visiting relatives and they had a um, next door one of the uh, one of the relatives had this a chicken farm and it was a free range chicken farm and I wanted to see what it was like so we toured the whole thing and they were more free range so I think I mean they had more instead of being in a little bitty you know cage like they were they had found ways to make it a big huge they were huge warehouses so they were not like flying all over, but they could get in and out and they had long, huge tubes that they could, you know, go in and out of. So I think it's just more of a innovation and creativity thing too, where you were talking about impossible meat and using free range. I think we just have to kind of expand our minds on stuff like that. And also just talking about some of this CSR stuff. I just, um, all of the things that I talked about were food products and a lot of times I you know I don't think dairy gold was um I'm sure they were upset with the the things that were happening so in this perfect world it would be great but sometimes just like John was talking about sometimes we have these um circumstances that we we can't really know or you know in a perfect world it'd be great but if we can I guess if we can do the best we can <laughs> and do, you know, and have these innovative ideas, then at least we're going along that way. Well, and, and I, I agree, um, you know, when we talked about those two ends of the spectrum, you know, you've got the classic model where you, you should not be spending people's money for anything other than making a profit. And then the very far end where your company is actually um, a socially responsible thing is, is what you're, you're doing. Um, you say, well, how can those two views exist simultaneously well the idea is like um so if i'm somebody and that's all i want to do is to get the most return on my money then i'm going to invest in companies that don't do any philanthropic work because i want to get the most for my money but today you know apple has become a company that does all kinds of socially responsible kinds of things and um, people invest in apple sometimes simply because they believe in those kinds of things so I think when you have the stakeholders or stockholders that come forward and say, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to be socially responsible, and I would prefer to invest my money into something that's helping uh, the world to be a better place, then those industries can change. And so a lot of it is going to be driven by, you know, by consumers. Um, the problem sometimes is people say stuff like, oh, well, I'd be willing to pay $10 more for this if it was being you know, done in a responsible way. But when they actually pull their wallets out, they, they don't. And so that's part of what we can do as people is to say, 
if we really want to see more socially responsible behaviors in companies, we should, you know, plow our money into companies that do socially responsible things. And again, really socially responsible, not just the social or the, the virtual signaling kinds of things, but companies that are really trying to, to help out. And then that would grow those industries and those companies. And people would see that, yeah, I can still be, you know, uh, profitable in this industry and behave in a way that's more kind of socially responsible. So, all right. So uh, yeah, go ahead. um, Just to piggyback off of what you're saying. I mean, social impact investing is a big deal and it's been growing in popularity over the last decade. And uh, in part that's driven by, you know, younger people, Um, you know, not, the old fogies like the four of us, you know, but, uh, but our children and their contemporaries, you know, younger millennials and Gen Z, they, I mean, they expect uh, more socially responsible um, approaches in business. They expect, um, you know, social impact investments that have positive outcomes for society. Uh, I think of my, my daughter, who's now, she turns 12 next week. But as a nine-year-old, she came home from school one day where they talked about how, um, you know, the, the big ag uh, and, and meat farming and, and how that all went down. And she came home at the age of nine and made the decision that she was going vegetarian. Um, I mean, she didn't cert- she certainly didn't get that from me because I love meat. Um, and we still make, you know, we, we still eat as a family and, and have meat on the table. She just uh, made that decision and, and has stuck with it. Uh, even at that young age. And, you know, I just see so many examples of that. Like people, um, to your point about consumers kind of putting their money where, um, you know, to, to reinforce their values. Um, I see that happening more and more with, with the younger um, people. And that's forcing companies, whether they want to or not, it's forcing them to respond. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be boycotts and uh, all the negative PR and all that kind of stuff is going to come about and going to hurt them. Great. Uh, just a couple final questions as we're kind of wrapping up here. So, so one question is, uh, so, you know, how can stakeholders um, differentiate between actual instances of CSR and these mere virtual signaling? So. Are so. you, I don't know if anyone really can, I'm not a really good uh I know they have some people that can tell when a liar, when you read their face or whatever, but I'm, I'm not one of those. I really don't know if, if you can do that or not. What do you well, think? I think, I think one thing that uh, for me, the kind of signals the it written, written, is when somebody, or? when something, uh, you know, you know, when you look at Apple and see that they've had a lifelong yeah. you know yeah. commitment to diversity and to those kinds of things versus you see somebody when uh, some hot issue comes up and all of a sudden they're posting all these things that are, they're making big changes, like immediately in response to some hot topic. That's one that usually clues me in to say, well, maybe they're not really, you know, this. And then a lot of times what you can do is, is somebody will make some kind of a statement about, you know, do this. And then people will go back and say, like, for example, say, you know, we are so for ethnic diversity or whatever. And we, you know, and making, and then you go back and get a little bit of research on the company to find out that their actual hiring policies are not particularly good, you know, to, to minorities or whatever. And so that's often what you find that tells you it's virtue signaling is somebody is not actually living these kinds of things. Uh, there's, they're simply putting out a press release or doing something on the kind of surface for that. So 
And, and I, the last, I just, just yeah. to add to that really quickly, I think that you can do the research and you can follow kind of the paper trail of the company to see. I mean, I had the same thought when I walked into Malawi's Pizza. Is this just a video or is, you know, are they being oh, held yeah. accountable that this is, you can do the research yeah. often. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last question I think that we'll have time for is. Um, can I just say real quick, Jeff? Go ahead, John. Um, and time will tell. I mean, you, you brought up Apple. I think of like Patagonia. Yeah, I mean, they've they've actually you know for gone decades, through. right? <laughs> so yeah. so you have. I mean, if a company who hasn't really been involved in the space, you know, re- responds to some sort of a, a social outcry or you know some sort of timely um, sort of thing, I guess we don't know. We don't know um, yeah. until we see if they put their money where their mouth is, right? If, if they actually will live the values that they're stating. Um, oh, and, and that often, or something. So. Yeah, and, and sometimes yeah. that takes time to really yeah. bear to bear out. Yeah. And then the last question here, and I know if people need to drop, they can, can drop it. Uh, it simply says, uh, you know, does the fact that change needs to be kind of consumer-driven go against the idea mm-hmm. that executives can be ethics-driven? So again, my, my view is that those are not necessarily necessarily mutually exclu- exclusive, right? So definitely every uh, company is going to look at stuff and say, if we're getting pressure to do these kinds of things that will cause us to be more profitable or not doing them will, will hurt us. Um, companies are going to do that whether they have ethical driven CEOs or not. Um, however, there are still other ones who are going to simply say, well, this is the right thing for us to, to do. Um, but it certainly doesn't hurt to let companies know these are things that I care about and I don't want to buy your products because I just discovered that this is going on and I would, you know, appreciate if you would do something different that can help companies who are a little bit more, you know, resistant to it, or even give ethical CEOs more kind of fodder to be able to go back and say, this is what people want anyway, we should be just doing this. Well, and I'll have to just put in the legal, legalistic side that there's a lot of shareholder proposals during shareholder meetings and those are more and more coming up and being discussed. Yeah. And absolutely, they are going to change the outcome. Yeah. All right. So we are out of time. So I want to thank uh, Angela and Jill and, and John for being here and for sharing these ideas. So hopefully these were things that uh, were helpful to you and kind of give you a little bit of perspective about how, uh, you know, the, the, the wide range of responsibilities that companies may or may not have to society and kind of your ability to influence that and uh, and how you can be part of this uh, change to help us to be more socially responsible. So thank you, everyone. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? 
Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.